Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. You've got your scripture readings there in front of you in the bulletin as well as um, on the screens. We're going to read two texts today from 1 Corinthians 15 as well as from Luke 6. Uh, the 1 Corinthians passage is the one that will be the, the kind of preaching theme for today. Um, but I love the Luke 6 passage as well. That's the assigned text for this Sunday. And so we'll read them both, uh, but with a special eye toward 1 Corinthians today. So I invite you to hear these words of Scripture. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, and I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. All right, next from Luke chapter 6. He also told them this parable. Can a blind person guide a blind person? will not both fall into a pit. A disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully qualified will be like the teacher. Why do you see, see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, friend, let me take out the speck in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasures produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I will show you what someone who comes to me hears my word and acts on them. That is one who is like a man building a house, dug deeply, laid the foundation on rock. When a flood arose, the river burst against the house, but it would not shake it, because it has been well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built on a house on the ground without a foundation. The river burst against it, and it fell, and great was the ruin of that house. This is the word of the Lord for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Yes, God, it is with great thanksgiving that we gather in worship today. Uh, what a beautiful and sunny and warm day, a day full of your life and spirit after a cold and icy week. We ask, God, that your spirit would be among us as it already has in our fellowship and in our singing and in our praying and in our giving, in our hearing and reading of the Holy Scriptures. May your spirit speak through me and through my words, perhaps in spite of my words, for the good of these, your people. This in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, as I said, we've spent the last few weeks working with, with uh, the theme of resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. I remember many months ago looking ahead at the preaching schedule and, and penciling in these texts to be used. And today kind of wraps up this, this section, the very end of 1 Corinthians 15. 
Uh, and next week begins Lent, where we'll shift gears a little bit. And so today, 50 through 58. These are some of my favorite verses uh, in all of Scripture. And so I've got a couple of stories on the front end and the back end of the sermon, but then we'll do a fair amount of Bible study in the middle. So uh, keep those verses, keep that bulletin kind of in front of you uh, as we work through them today. All right, this week, amidst uh, a number of really troubling headlines, and of course you heard Chase pray around those themes, uh, you may have also seen in some of the national or even international news a headline about the death of a doctor named Paul Farmer. And this is Paul Farmer, uh, pictured in this, in this photo. He's the uh, Caucasian man on, on the left there. Uh, Paul Farmer is a doctor and an anthropologist, both with medical and, and doctoral PhD degrees from Harvard University. He's also a professor at Harvard, as well as some global health partners that he works with. And so he teaches in Harvard in some seasons, and he teaches around the world in other seasons. Uh, the reason that I know a little bit about Paul Farmer is because of Jill. Uh, during her undergraduate health science studies, uh, she was introduced to this guy, Paul Farmer, uh, and she read a book that was written about him called Mountains Beyond Mountains by author Tracy Kidder. And you could go uh, find that book and read it. It's a very inspirational and interesting book. A farmer is a really, uh, a really important figure in the world of global health. He has uh, spent his professional life uh, both as a professor but also as a, as a traveling uh, servant of sorts in Rwanda, in Peru. He spent a lot of time in Haiti, and that's what a large portion of his biography is about. Uh, one of, one of the, the things that he's most known for uh, is the organization that he helped co-found called Partners in Health which is now a large international nonprofit concerned with health care among the world's most vulnerable and poor. Very inspirational uh, and interesting person and, and a really key figure in the global fight of, of, on AIDS and, and other uh, similar diseases. So this week he died at the age of 62. And for those who follow him and know about him, it's a really surprising uh, and tragic loss uh, for all that he does for the world and particularly for global health. And the man who wrote his biography, Tracy Kidder, uh, wrote a, a piece in the New York Times reflecting a little bit on Farmer's life. And I thought I would share some, some of what Kidder said this morning. So Kidder says this. From my time with him, I remember most vividly a moment in Lima, Peru, when we had just been reunited with a boy that he had treated who had been afflicted with a case of multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis so severe that it had broken the long bones in his legs. Paul was visiting a hospital to meet with doctors to help with a different patient when the boy's mother and father and the boy came running, running down the hallway. The boy wasn't just healed, he was restored. With cries of delight and hugs, Paul met with the doctors and then went on his way out in the parking lot where we were met again by the woman, the mother. And she said in Spanish, I want to say so many thanks. And Paul said to her, for me it is a privilege. Kidder continues, Paul Farmer described his work as accompaniment working alongside others of large, other members of large cooperatives in this enterprise. With his Rwandan colleagues, he conceived and saw to fruition a large medical project in a rural district where there had never been a hospital. And they created there a beautiful full-service facility that now treats cancer patients from across the country. Paul had just gone there for that local medical school's white coat ceremony with its first cohort of students, and it is there that he died on Monday. Many people, this is Kidder again, many people are feeling deep grief about his death. And speaking for myself, I find it hard to imagine a world without him in it. 
especially in this moment when cynicism has become a cardinal virtue and compassion and decency seem a sucker's pursuit. But Paul Farmer plan- Paul's plans and dreams live on in the minds of thousands of people who are eager to follow his example, and I like to think that he died happy. So I've been reading a few things about Farmer this week and thinking about his life and his, uh, we might call it a ministry, and, and I want you to know about him, if for nothing else, uh, you can go study about Farmer a little bit yourself. Uh, but the question that sort of comes to mind for me is, um, we have been talking about the resurrection, both the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of his followers. And so something that I sort of struggle with, and I want you to, to struggle with me today a little bit to think about is, you know, if we believe in the resurrection, if we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, if we believe that Jesus' followers will be resurrected, if we believe in this eternal peace and happiness then why is it that someone like Farmer would spend so much time and energy and, and money you know, working to, to br- bring relief to the world's uh, poor and infirmed? Like, why is it so important to work for other people and for their good if we all believe that there's going to be an eventual resurrection and peace and harmony anyway? And then kind of a second question that relates to that is, is why is Farmer's death such a tragedy? Right? For those who knew him and who followed him and for who, who celebrated his work, Why are we so sad, right, that he's no longer with us if we have this eternal hope anyway, right? Why don't those two sort of just cancel each other out? And I think today, 1 Corinthians 15 will help to answer that question a little bit. So like I said, we're going to do a little bit of Bible study, and so you keep that text there in front of you. I want to talk a little bit about how we got to today's verses, and then I want to unpack what are some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. So 1 Corinthians 15, we've been working with it for three or four weeks now. The theme is resurrection, right? Uh, Paul is kind of wrapping up this letter, and he says that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And so he seems to be pushing against those in the Corinthian church who believed that there was only a spiritual afterlife. Right? And Paul is saying, no, Christ was raised from the dead. His body was given back to him. And because Christ has been raised from the dead, we too, we who follow Christ, will also be raised from the dead. The resurrection of the body. This is 1 Corinthians 15. This is the whole point, right? Jesus was raised from the dead. You too will be raised from the dead. And then today we get these last few verses, and I want to kind of unpack them with you. I have a few more slides than usual, so we can look at a few verses at a time. The first thing that Paul says is he sort of uh, gives a little indication uh, as to how we might think about the future timeline of these events, right? And so he says, listen, and I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for the perishable body will put on imperishability, and the mortal body will put on immortality. Now, I sort of toyed with that question last week, sort of thinking about when does the resurrection happen? Like, if we believe that we're going to be raised from the dead, how, when? Well, Paul here at the beginning of these verses kind of says what Revelation says to some degree, right? That there will be some future event, right? That this, this new heaven, this new Jerusalem will come to, to earth and there will be this sort of this eternal uniting, sort of God's, God's presence eternally and permanently gathered among us. And Paul says there will be a trumpet that sounds, right? We've heard that image before in our lives. And that will be sort of the moment where we're all gathered up in God's eternal presence, resurrected, putting on imperishability and immortality. The, the theological word for this, the churchy word for this is parousia, right? Parousia, which means Christ's second coming, right? Christ's second coming. So that'll be the event, the moment when our bodies are resurrected like Christ's. And then he continues, when the perishable body puts on imperishability, the mortal body puts on mortality, 
then the saying that is written will be fulfilled, death has been swallowed up in victory. Right? So I want you to notice in your own Bibles or in, in the scripture printed there in your bulletin or on the screen, right? then the saying that is written will be fulfilled, death has been swallowed up in victory. That's in quotations, right? And so Paul is quoting here this wonderful line from a source that comes from before him, right? And it's a wonderful line. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Well, the Bible scholars have done some work for us on this, right? And they point us all the way back to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah, one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. Chapter 25, that's kind of in the first third of Isaiah. There's a hopeful vision about what God will do to renew the people of Israel and bring peace and harmony forever. Isaiah chapter 25 says this, And he, being the Lord, will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. So Isaiah 25 has this hopeful vision, right? In the face of Israel's challenges and its sins and its shortcomings, right? It's outside threats. Isaiah 25 has this hopeful vision that one day, God will, will take death and swallow it up. Right? I love that phrase, swallow it up. And notice that Isaiah says for all peoples, right? not just for Israel, but for its neighbors and maybe for its enemies. For all peoples, and then, and then we get that very great line that the Lord himself will wipe away the tears from our faces. Right? So this is Isaiah's sort of hopeful vision. And then, in fact, in Revelation, John the Revelator, right, he kind of picks up on that language as well, that one day we'll be united and, and every tear will be wiped away. So what, what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says death will be swallowed up in victory, he's taking this very old vision from Isaiah. That is so creepy, isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> he's taking this very old vision from Isaiah, right, and he's saying that that time has come, right? That in Christ's resurrection, death has been swallowed up. And your death will be swallowed up in this victory as well. So in some ways, what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15 is he's saying this isn't a new hope. This isn't a new thing. This was sort of always the vision and always the hope. That death would be defeated and that our tears would be wiped away. Right? Then he continues. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? I love that line. I've read it countless times at funerals or at committals, at graveside services. I almost always choose 1 Corinthians 15 to stand over the grave, to stand over the casket, and to proclaim, Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Again, though, you will notice in your Bible or in the bulletin or on the screen there that, that those, those phrases are in quotation marks. And so again, we know that Paul is borrowing this language from a source that predates him. And again, the Bible scholars have done a little extra work for us here because this connection is not quite so obvious. But here Paul is quoting from Hosea chapter 13. All right? So we've got Isaiah, a major prophet in the Old Testament, a hopeful vision. Hosea, a minor prophet, a fairly short book. And Hosea is really a book of, of judgment. It's not a particularly optimistic or hopeful view. It's maybe written in the 700s. This is pre-exile. This is kind of the height of Israel's selfishness and sin, and they're turning away from, from God. Hosea is kind of a, a challenging book. 
And so Hosea 13, in its description of Israel's sin and shortcoming, it kind of paints death as an appropriate judgment, if not punishment. So here's what Hosea says, Ephraim, that's meaning Israel, Ephraim's iniquity is bound up and his sin is kept in store, right? Israel is so full of sin. And then this is the Lord speaking. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your destruction? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. So Hosea's view, a view of judgment, is that Israel is essentially killing itself, right? And choosing to turn away from God and choosing to follow other gods and choosing to be disobedient and sinful Israel is getting death, and as a Hosea sees it, that's sort of what Israel deserves. That Israel is being judged according to her sins. Israel is, is being put to death, and the Lord has, has hidden compassion from the Lord's eyes. So notice what Paul does, and this is really crafty writing, right? He takes this word of threat, this word of judgment in Hosea, where death is being held over Israel as a judgment, right? If you continue in this sin, you're going to die. And Paul says... No, we're going to take that quote and we're going to kind of flip it on its head, right? Whereas in Hosea, death was a threat, an outcome. Now, after Christ's resurrection, Paul says, Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? In other words, what used to be a threat, what used to be a judgment, what used to be a concern in this Old Testament judgment, this Old Testament prophet, has now been taken away, right? There's no need to fear for your death. There's no need to fear for what might happen in your sin. Death has lost its victory and lost its sting. I encourage you, uh, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin and the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I encourage you to think about um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his death uh, in two senses, and I think this is really important, right? So I want you to put this in your brain. I want you to think about what happens to Jesus in Holy Week and what happens in the resurrection first in a political sense, right? And what I mean by that is that we know when we read the stories of the Gospels that there were political parties, political powers that were aligned in such a way that led to Jesus' wrongful accusation, uh, wrongful death, right? And this was those powers' ways, both the Roman powers and Jewish powers, this was those powers' ways of, of having some authority and having some some threatening power over those in their area. So Christ was put to death in a political sense, right? That's what happened to Jesus. But in his resurrection, he was vindicated. The other thing we ought to think about Jesus, of course, is the way we typically think about it, is the kind of religious sense, right? That for most of us, death is a, a great fear, a great anxiety. What happens to us when we die? But in Jesus Christ, the resurrection has been made real and has been made available to us. And so now we have this religious conviction, this religious hope, right? That the resurrection gives us a hopeful afterlife, right? That there's a day where death will be swallowed up in victory. So when we think about death and dying, and we think about it in a kind of political sense, in the way in which Jesus was put to death, or we think about it in a religious sense, in the way in which most of us think about our lives, Paul says, whichever way you think about death, either the threat of an outside force or your own dying, However you think about dying, death has lost its sting. Death has lost its sting. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, you will also be raised from the dead. Therefore, you, you don't have to be worried about those political powers, those Roman authorities, persecution. 
You don't have to be worried about what's going to happen to you in the next life or, or in, in, when, you're, when you go to your grave, right? As Isaiah says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Whether it's political anguish or it's kind of a religious anguish, whatever the case may be, death has lost its sting. And so, this comes to maybe one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Because of everything we've read in 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians has all these little lessons in it. It has lessons about communion and how we ought to eat together. It has lessons about uh, many parts in one body, about how we're gifted in different ways. It has that wonderful chapter in 13 about how love is the supreme gift and goal of the Christian life. And of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, we have all these, these teachings from Paul about the importance of the resurrection. And Paul says, given all of that, because all of that is true, therefore, that's a big connecting word for us, therefore, my beloved, be steadfast and movable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Right? Paul's big conclusion here is because Christ has been raised from the dead, because you are going to be raised from the dead, you need no longer to fear death, whether it's a, a political threat or a religious anxiety. You need no longer to fear death, and therefore you are free to live and to serve and to love just as Christ taught. You have nothing to be afraid of. Christ has been raised from the dead. You will be raised from the dead. Therefore, get to work excelling in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Paul's entire argument here is that because of the resurrection, we should have the courage and the confidence to go out and to live as these radically committed Christian disciples. Because there's nothing holding us back. Even death is not holding us back. Now notice what Paul does not say, right? and I would drive this home. Paul does not say that the resurrection of the dead is just a get-out-of-hell-free of card, right? as it is sometimes peddled. right? Just believe in this, believe that Jesus rose, and believe your sins are forgiven, and therefore you won't have to go to hell. Won't that be great? Right? That's not what Paul says. Right? Nor does he say, just believe in this, believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you're going to raise from the dead, so you just, just live your life. right? Just be happy and do whatever you want. He doesn't say that either. Rather, he says, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, because you will be raised from the dead, you can go out and act faithfully in the world. Our lives are given this great moral significance, this moral weight. The way we live actually matters because Christ has been raised from the dead and because we will be raised from the dead as well. You may remember a few years ago, um, there was this uh, social media uh, craze, both on Facebook and on Instagram, uh, this account called Humans of New York. Are any of you familiar with this at all, a few of you? So Humans of New York is an account uh, orchestrated on the premise that this person takes a photo of individuals in New York City or sometimes in other places and then writes a little blurb about their lives, whatever they're willing to share. And it could be something about a struggle or a triumph or their childhood or their job, just all sorts of things. It's just kind of fascinating what people share and what they're willing to say. Um, and, and I sort of enjoyed following that around 2015, 16, 17. That was a really, really big deal. Uh, one of the humans of New York postings in 2016 was a surgeon wearing his surgical gear, his cap and his mask and his scrubs. Uh, and it was a photo of him and it was a quote uh, about what he does uh, in his work. And it captivated me in 2016, and I actually kind of returned to it often, uh, thinking about these themes of the resurrection uh, and our moral responsibility in this life. And I thought I would share it with you today. Now, I know that font's a little small. I'll read it for you. 
the absolute best thing in the world, this is the doctor speaking, the absolute best thing in the world that can happen to me is telling a parent that their child's tumor is benign. I live for those moments. And the worst thing that happens to me is telling a parent that I've lost their child. It's only happened to me five times in 30 years. And I've wanted to kill myself every single time. Those parents trust me with their child. A sacred trust, the ultimate responsibility, is always mine. And so I lose sleep for days. I second guess every decision I made. Every time I lose a child, I tell their parents I'd rather be dead than her. And I mean it. But I go to church every single day, and I think that I'm going to see those kids in a better place. And I'm going to tell them that I'm sorry. And hopefully, they'll say, forget about it, come on in. Now, I love the depth of this quote for so many reasons, uh, but mainly the way in which this surgeon is holding together the hope of the resurrection and the depth of the moral responsibilities that we carry in this life. And those two do not cancel one another out. Rather, they, they strengthen and enrich one another. Now, it could be that people like Paul Farmer or this surgeon, Michael Laquagila, it could be that people that work in the medical world, they have a certain awareness and they have a certain sort of requirement to, to live into this hope in a way that most of us don't. But my sense is that the lessons are still the same for us. Christ was raised from the dead. We too will be resurrected one day, putting on imperishability and immortality. And therefore, you are free to live radically different lives, committed to the life and the teaching of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we give thanks for the witness of those who came before us, for those who saw Jesus raised from the dead, for those who told the stories and taught of its importance. Help us to receive again this hope, not just of Christ's resurrection, but our resurrection. And in this hope, let us also receive again the call to action, to love and to serve our neighbor, to care for the world in this life, hoping for the redemption that we will all receive in the life to come. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparacle.org. May God bless you this week.